today for our scripture reading, very short, is from Roman, or Romans, where's my mind at? Whew, family. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this, this community of believers here that each and every week we get to, to come together and to explore what it means to actually practice out our mission statement of following Jesus faithfully in real life. And, and for this series, as we uh, begin a new series today and really think about what it's going to look like for us to follow Jesus faithfully in real life, God, I, I pray that you would give us a, a sense of clarity on, on what Jesus is trying to get across to us in his greatest sermon, that he's leading us on a certain way, and I pray that as he leads us, as he invites us, you would give each and every one of us just open hearts to, to hear how he's leading us and to take his way as the right way. And so for every other way that we are offered, every other way of life that we have constructed for ourselves, God, throughout this series, would you give us the grace of turning away from those things, of hearing Jesus' framework for the good life, and following him down that path by your grace. So today, as we explore the human drive for happiness and the way that this intersects with this great sermon in Matthew 5, God, would you give us grace? Would you help us to hear? And would your spirit invite us into this great way that Jesus opens up? In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, today we are kicking off a, a new series, and, and I'm very excited about this one. This is called uh, Jesus the Great Philosopher, and we're going to explore uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the way that Jesus kind of lays out the good life or the framework for human flourishing. And here at the start, I just want to go ahead and uh, get rid of any, uh, any mirage of originality or creativity. Uh, the two books that I'm using for this series are uh, written by one of my professors, uh, and the two books are called Jesus the Great Philosopher, and the other one's called The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. And so, um, so this is all based on Dr. Jonathan Pennington, and he, he's a brilliant man and a, and a good thing to, he's a great guide through the Gospel of Matthew specifically. So I'm excited for this, uh, to, to kind of see what Jesus lays out for us in this old text and, and see if we can't see it in a fresh way. And so today, as we kick off this series, uh, much of today is all introduction, just kind of setting up some scaffolding that we'll need in order for us to go through this sermon well. And to kick it off, I want to, I want to give you a moment to reflect, and I want you to actually do something. I want you uh, to pull out your phone, or if you're taking notes uh, with pen and paper, you can use that. Open up your notes section, or Evernote, whichever you use. And I want you to answer this question. And I'm going to give you a moment to reflect and, and really write it down. What is it that would make you meaningfully happy? What would exist in your life for, for happiness to, to, to really last? Take a moment to reflect on that and don't be, don't be too holy. Just write down what you really feel. Give a little time for you to think.
Now, if you have it, hold on to that answer for a little bit, and we will revisit it. In our world today, it is hard to be happy. But the thing about human beings is that we never actually stop trying. It's hard to be happy. Let's, let's explore that. It's hard to be happy in our world today. I wonder if you recognize how ridiculous of a statement that actually is given our modern situation. It's hard to be happy. We are some of, you, you, you currently live in the richest, most advanced, most physically safe bubble of a culture than has ever existed in human history. The wealth that, that we possess and the, and the tools that we're able to use would have been absolutely unfathomable just a century ago. And yet here we are with all kinds of shiny tools and shiny lives, but we are no more the happier for it. It is hard to be happy in our modern culture, despite what we have. In, in his book, uh, in his international bestseller, Sapiens, the author Yuval Noah Harari uh, traces human history uh, with what he understands to be kind of a, a two and a half million year process of evolutionary biology. It's a massive book with a massive task. But the thing is, Harari's task is not to just uh, document human evolution at a species level, but he actually wants to dom uh, document the, the evolution of human civilization. And at the end of the book, look here, I know we got the quote, but we'll get there, don't worry. At the end of this massive book, he has two chapters that kind of function as the crescendo moment that he's been documenting for hundreds of pages how human civilization has evolved over the last two and a half million years. And the, the way that he chooses to land this massive book is with two chapters. The, the second to the last chapter is about technology and what he sees as the future of the human race with cybernetics and things like that. But the final chapter, his big crescendo moment, is titled, And They Lived Happily Ever After. It's a title built around a question. Harari says this, the last 500 years have witnessed a breathtaking series of revolutions. The earth has been united into a single ecological and historical sphere. The economy has grown exponentially and humankind today enjoys the kind of wealth that would have been the stuff of fairy tales. Science and the Industrial Revolution have given humankind superhuman powers and practically limitless energy. The social order has been completely transformed, as have politics, daily life, and human psychology. But are we happier? Did the wealth humankind accumulated over the last five centuries translate into a newfound contentment? Has the cognitive revolution made the world a better place to live in? Was the late Neil Armstrong, whose footprint remains intact on the windless moon, happier than the nameless hunter-gatherer who 30,000 years ago left her handprint on a wall in Chavot Cave? But are we happier? It's a haunting question at the end of this book. A menacing question that, that if... Harari kind of writes as he writes it out that if it's not answered in a meaningful and full way, kind of threatens to disregard everything he's written before that as meaningless. 
Despite the progress, despite the advancement that Harari traces for hundreds of pages, he lands the book and simply says, if it's not created a happier lifestyle and a happier human race, what's the point? Are, are we happier? Unfortunately, there, there's not an empirical way to really answer that question. There's simply no way for us to really measure happiness throughout history because happiness is so often built on expectations, right? There's no way for us to know whether the 18th century farmer or African tribesman or 5th century Mayan king really was happy or not. We, We look at their conditions and we think there's no way they could have been happy. Look at what they had to endure. But again, happiness is often tied to expectations, so there's no way for us to really measure that throughout history. But what we can do is look at our modern moment and consider whether we actually are happy. Are we happy as a society? Are we happy as individuals? Unfortunately, I I don't think the answer is a positive one. Again, despite the wealth of our society... And the advancement of technology, the the global pathways of communication, we seem not just to be not happy, but less happy than ever. If If you had to take a guess, how many licensed mental health professionals exist today in the U.S. alone? You had to take a guess. Let's talk back, back and forth. Who wants to give an answer? Thousands. That's a (laughs) non-answer. I want a specific number. 577,000 mental health professionals. And each one of those, as we've seen throughout the pandemic, each one of those 577,000 no doubt has their work cut out for them. Therapy is in many ways sacred in our culture because it recognizes the problem of our culture, a loss of happiness and wholeness, and it promises a satisfying answer to that problem. Or the self-help industry, worth $10 billion a year in the U.S. alone. That number, and this is shocking to me, rivals the pornography industry in the U.S. We are unhappy. Are we happier? The answer, in the U.S. at least, seems to be a resounding no. And yet, like I said, that never keeps us from trying. That that, that lack of happiness or that sense of having lost something that we once had as a society, it doesn't keep us from still trying to to find it, despite how out of reach it feels sometimes. Happiness is a human drive that cannot be resisted. So much so that, that the founding fathers, if you remember, what's, what's the statement that our country really revolves around? The pursuit the, uh, to, to establish life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness codified into the American way of life. We can't help but pursue happiness. Our, our, our psychology demands it. There's a reason only humans die by suicide. Because we cannot bear a life that does not have meaning, that does not have purpose and flourishing. 
And in our age of therapy and self-help, we, I think specifically, have added on another category in our relentless pursuit of happiness, which is this, gurus. (laughs) We are in the age of gurus. We each have them, right? Jordan Peterson, yeah, Oprah, Morgan Harper Nichols, and the ever-growing category of social media influences, they're all gurus. They're all people who, who we believe are in some way enlightened enough for us to sit at their feet and, and have them teach us the way to happiness. Have, us, have, have them teach us, guide me. What is it that I need to change in my life? What is it I need to change in my relationships or in my thinking for me to finally find happiness? We have gurus who we want to guide us. And that's, again, that, uh, to say this, it's not just the outside world that's doing this. It, it is Christians today that look for gurus to guide them. So Dr. Jonathan Pennington, the one who, who wrote those books, uh, says this. Because we have lost the image of Jesus as a whole life philosopher, many faithful Christians find other gurus to help them figure out the questions of daily living. Our modern culture has plenty of philosophers on tap. We have philosophers of finance, Warren Buffett. Philosophers of a book we should read to feel empowered, Oprah. Philosophers of leadership principles, Ray Dalio. Philosophers of productivity, David Allen. And how to get into the flow. Not going to try that one. (laughs) Philosophers of fashion and chic, cool, Heidi Klum. Philosophers of creativity, Austin Kleon, and the philosophers of getting organized and getting rid of stuff, Marie Kondo. Christians often create their philosophy of life from a hodgepodge of these, often adding in a Christianized version of the same thinkers. Take your pick, friends. We are all on a journey for happiness, and we have co-opted for ourselves gurus who we think will guide us down the path. We want someone to lead us to happiness. Now, in all of this, here's an important question. You're you're in a church for Sunday service listening to a sermon, not a TED Talk, and so it's important for us to ask this specific question. Does God care about our happiness? And I use that word specifically, happiness. I I know probably if you've been in a church for a while, you're probably like, well, you should probably use the word joy or something like that. No. Does God care about our happiness, our flourishing? Into all of this this mess of modern culture, this disappointment of a loss of happiness, and all of our searching for the right guru, does God care at all? Is our desire for happiness as human beings, is it an aberration from God's original design? Did God design us to be happy? I want you to answer that question. I want you to answer honestly because I think it really tells a lot about your view of God. Is our human drive for happiness, for flourishing, and for a meaningful life, is that drive stronger than God's desire for us? Is God, like many in our culture would identify him as, a a stiff-lipped tyrant? who's really more interested in what you can do and really, and really the service that you might render him rather than your own personal flourishing? Is he, a, is he a buzzkill who frowns upon our pursuit of happiness? 
Does God care at all about our condition of happiness? Answer that question for yourself. And in this, as is often the case, C.S. Lewis helps us out here. In his sermon, The Weight of Glory, Lewis says this. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires for happiness not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Our desire as human beings for happiness is not too strong in God's estimation, but is actually too weak. Which means that, that Lewis is trying to say that, that God's desire for human happiness is actually stronger than our own drive for happiness. God wants you to be flourishing and whole more than even we do. God is so interested, and as you look throughout redemptive history, very invested in you flourishing as a human being and you having a sense of wholeness and purpose. God wants that. God's not a stiff-lipped tyrant. God is not more concerned with what you can do for him rather than what he wants to create in you, a sense of wholeness. God wants to do this in you. And, and we see this all throughout the scriptures. God cares about this. The, even the entire Old Testament, the, the, the whole thing is built around the, the scaffolding of this Hebrew idea called shalom. Shalom, a, a sense of flourishing and peace a sense of wholeness in the world. And you, and you read the Old Testament and you see that shalom is where it all started. God made it. God made peace. God made flourishing and wholeness. And we're the ones who screwed it up. We are the ones who have lost shalom. And what's, what's the response of the rest of the Old Testament? Indeed, the rest of the whole Bible. It's about God doing everything possible to reestablish flourishing and wholeness back in the world. Throughout the Bible, it's not human beings that are, are driving that reestablishment of peace and wholeness, but it is God. We're often the ones delaying it, actually. We're the ones delaying that sense of shalom with, like C.S. Lewis says, cheap things like sex and alcohol and career and family, making those things ultimate. But God remains steadfastly committed to human flourishing, to reestablish in the world peace, wholeness, and even happiness. The Bible tells a clear story that God is much more concerned with our wholeness and flourishing than even we are. God wants it more badly than you do. And yet, if we were honest, it doesn't often feel like God wants our happiness more than we do. 
Can, can we be honest for a second? Yeah? We read the Bible, or we even analyze our own experience in life, and sometimes we feel like we have to draw the conclusion that God is doing a, if God really cares about this, God is doing a very poor job at both managing and encouraging our flourishing. Have you ever felt like that? If God cares about it so much, where is it? Where is it? If he wants it so badly for me, he must be doing a really poor job actually bringing it to us. But, but I don't think that's actually true. Maybe an illustration will help. So yesterday, yesterday? No, Friday, we, uh, we took our two kids. Uh, I have uh, two kids, Margo, who's four, and then Milo, who's one, uh, to go get caught up on some shots. Um, and, you know, COVID really delayed a lot of that. And so my son had to get five shots. Uh, my daughter had to get three. Uh, and two weeks ago, my daughter had to get five. And so uh, I was there at, we were there at the doctor and I had to wait outside because they only let one person in uh, with the kids. And uh, I, it's funny how I could hear and know exactly when which kid got each shot. Um, it, it's really, there's a sermon illustration in there somewhere that a father can immediately recognize which is his own child. And as soon as, specifically Margot, got those first shots, you would have thought they were performing, like, you, you would have thought they would have been an amputation, like in the Civil War, you know? Like, no, no, no pain meds or anything, just pure screams. And so, and I'm sitting there, and I'm kind of chuckling, you know? Um, geez, guys, sorry, you guys are so holy. I think it's funny. Um, and, and I'm sitting there, and I'm hearing her scream, and, and she comes out and I'm comforting her and everything and, uh, and we're driving home and she's just like, I don't, I don't want to go to the doctor anymore. Like, I, do, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and I was thinking about it. The, the, the whole point of that pain was actually to establish health. The, the, the point of those shots, and I know some might disagree, that's fine to each his own, but hear the heart of the illustration. The point of that was to establish health in her. And it would have required pain in order to have that. There was short-term pain that actually established for her the possibility of long-term health. And there's no way to give those shots without pain. Science has not yet grown enough to give kids vaccinations in the form of chicken nuggets, as amazing as that would be. In order to establish long-term health, they're required for them a very short-term, momentary pain. And I believe that much of the reason why we draw the conclusion that God is doing a poor job at encouraging our happiness is because we believe that adult version of chicken nuggets. We, we, we believe that the happiness and I'm sure much of what's been going on in your mind as I've used that term really boils down to this, emotional mathematics. It's just emotional mathematics. The average person believes that, that we are happy if the sum of our pleasant experiences is a little bit higher, hopefully more higher, than our unpleasant ones. We think that happiness is all built around having a, just a net positive of pleasant and positive experiences, which is why that's the buzzword of today, right? Positivity. We think that with a healthy dose of positivity and, a, and maybe a dash of good emotions, 
will come out on the other side as happy. But happiness, flourishing, is so much more than just having a a net positive in your pleasant experiences. Happiness actually consists in seeing one's life in its entirety as meaningful and worthwhile. Which is why even some of the, the, the happiest people can exist in some of the most darkest and negative situations, right? That there can be real flourishing in the midst of suffering because our flourishing, our, the, the good life is not emotional mathematics where you just feel pretty much better than you usually do feel not so better. That's a cheap form of happiness. Happiness is when your whole life coherently comes under one great purpose, one, gate, one, one great sense of your life being worthwhile. One of, one of my favorite books that I hopefully will reread this year uh, is by Dostoevsky called The Brothers Karamazov. Uh, and in that book, there's a character who is uh, who's the monk elder named Elder Zosima. And throughout the book, he, he kind of functions as the moral center of the novel, right, if you've read it. And, and while discussing in that book his impending death with this noble lady, she remarks that Sozima looks so happy despite his deteriorating health. And Sozima, he, he responds with this. If I seem happy to you, there's nothing you could ever say that would please me so much. For men are made for happiness, and anyone who is completely happy has a right to say to himself, I am doing God's will on earth. All the righteous, all the saints, all the holy martyrs are happy. That line has always stuck out to me. All the holy martyrs are happy. What a bold statement. That those who are headed to the gallows can be the the most happy only because their death in that moment is the result of a meaningful, purposeful life. Happiness in the context of suffering is not a paradox. It makes perfect sense as long as that suffering is leading you down a purposeful and whole life. Happiness what we all want and don't seem to have in our modern society is not found in balancing out the right emotional mathematics, but living life in a purposeful, meaningful, directed way. And finally, friends, this purpose, this life of meaning is exactly what Jesus is trying to invite you into throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Finally got there. The Sermon on the Mount, so many times like we've read it, 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 it's not about Jesus just ratcheting up some Old Testament Testament commands. It's not about him just kind of giving some clarity to our life for us to kind of follow. It's not about his fight with the Pharisees. As we'll see, The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' attempt at standing up in the midst of this human ache for meaning and for purpose and for happiness, getting up and giving his divine answer. 
Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and as we'll see, there's even words that he uses throughout this that exactly matches that of the ancient Greek philosophers. He's trying to bring us into a way of life in order to direct us toward flourishing, direct us toward wholeness. How does he do that? Well, you're just going to have to join us throughout the series to find that out. But let me end by, by saying three things in this introduction. The first one is something that I'll be repeating throughout this entire series. And if you're taking notes, these are the three things to really write down. First, meaning, purpose, and the good life are not consumer goods that Jesus gives us one time in order for us to possess. This meaning and this wholeness that Jesus is going to invite us into, he does not give it to us one time and then simply we get to have it. Rather, we receive that, we are given those things in the way of life that he invites us to follow. Throughout this series, throughout as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, it's not just going to be like, hey, here's a quick life hack for your life. You want to feel happy? Here you go. You can't, you can't pick and choose the Sermon on the Mount. It's a, it's a comprehensive way of life for us to walk down and to follow. Jesus is resistant to one-time fixes. <laughs> He's not here to give you that life hack that will immediately make your life better. He is here, as we'll see, to invite you into a way of life that will culminate in meaning and flourishing. And the second thing, and this is my warning, This way of life that Jesus is going to invite us into, it will most likely not match up with whatever it is that you wrote down at the beginning of this sermon. Most likely, Jesus is going to contradict our current way of life. Jesus does not give this great sermon as a motivational speaker He's not just trying to encourage you to kind of tack his thoughts onto yours and see if it works for you. No, Jesus climbs this mountain in order to call you into a way of life that will in some spots agitate your current way of thinking. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be contradicted by Jesus? If your life doesn't, if Jesus doesn't contradict you on anything, you've made up your own Jesus, (laughs) And as we'll see throughout this sermon series, we'll need a sense of surrender. We'll need a sense of surrender if we're going to hear Jesus rightly. Think back, friend, to what you wrote down as your answer to what happiness really means. I'm not saying that Jesus will automatically make you delete that entire answer, but my guess is that it will need to be edited if you were to follow him on this path that he lays out. Are you open to that? Are you open to a new, better definition of what happiness can really look like for your life? Are you willing to surrender your view of happiness for what Jesus invites you into? This is my warning, to put it shortly. Jesus' framework for the good life that we will see over the next 14 weeks will require repentance of us all. I hope you're ready for that. And finally, this Sermon on the Mount, this framework for the good life, friends, 
and I want to hit on this as much as possible in every single sermon until I die, this sermon Jesus gives is given by the same person who will later climb another hill just outside of Jerusalem. This, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus climbs a mountain in order to be our teacher, but at Golgotha, Jesus climbs that hill in order to be our savior. And we cannot have the first without the second. Jesus cannot just be our teacher. Jesus cannot just be our guru. He's gotta be our savior. He's gotta be the one who not just climbs the mountain in order to teach us, but actually climbs the hill and eventually the cross in order to save us. Jesus can't really teach us anything if we are not first cleansed of all the ways that we've gone astray. So yes, this series is, is going to require repentance for us all. But remember this, it's not a repentance of you blazing the trail of you doing it on your own. This path that Jesus is gonna invite us in to follow, it is paved with grace. And that's where I wanna end today. Because like I said, there's gonna be so many things over the next 14 weeks that each of us are going to have to repent of. But friend, you don't have to wait 14 weeks to repent. You know where you got to already. And wherever that is, Wherever it is that you intuitively know, oh, throughout this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to contradict me here. Whatever that is, do not, whatever that conviction is, do not let shame make you just punt on the lesson. Say, whatever, I'm not even gonna try. Receive the grace of Jesus Christ that covers you, that washes you, this sermon is an invitation, but it first comes through the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's in that that we hope. That is where flourishing really leads. So friends, as we take this journey over the next 14 weeks, as we walk this path, let's make sure together in sermons and in conversations and as we go through this with one another in community groups, let's make sure that we are continually bringing each other back to the unending grace of Jesus Christ that paves this entire way. It's our hope, and it's that way that will eventually lead us toward flourishing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your son is not a, a guru who tells us what to do and then simply leaves us to figure the rest of it out. This is where your Holy Spirit comes in. That we've been given a helper in order to, to walk this path, in order to follow your son. We've been given a helper in the Holy Spirit. God, I have, I have great hopes as we walk through this sermon to, to really practice our, our mission statement where we get to hear from Jesus himself what, what the good life in real life actually is. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would give us a sense of conviction, absolutely. But then also we would just feel and sense the, the grace that's already and always available to us in Jesus and even the love that you would invite us into flourishing, that Jesus, you didn't show up just to pay for our sins and then, and then leave. You actually left us with a way to follow. So would your Holy Spirit help us over the coming months 
to see the better way that Jesus provides for us, to, to feel that ache that we have for real happiness, and to give up on all the other gurus, give up on all the other ways that we think we can figure it out on our own, and to really follow Jesus faithfully in real life. Would your spirit help us in that? Give us a sense of conviction. Show us the ways that we have gone astray. And invite us by your grace. Empower us by your spirit to get back on the path and to follow faithfully. God, we trust you for it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.